Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Scott McCartney is made possible with the support of Pratt & Whitney, whose GTF engines are redefining aviation. Learn more at pwgtf.com. And by Doohop. Doohop is revolutionizing travel connectivity. Learn more at doohop.com. We also welcome your business's support. Info at airlinesconfidential.com. Welcome to Airlines Confidential. I'm Ben Baldanza, and I'm glad to be with you today to talk about aviation security, airline passengers, and the NBA playoffs. Just kidding about basketball. There are other podcasts for that. Besides Scott McCartney, your team tanked, didn't it? That's right, Ben. The Dallas Mavericks missed the playoffs on purpose. No matter. We've got more interesting things to talk about, like the future of aviation security screening with David Pekoski, the administrator of the Transportation Security Administration. He's going to give us an idea of what the checkpoint of the future is going to be like. And I think listeners will be fascinated and heartened to hear what parts of security screening may speed up quickly. Administrator Pekoski has done, by all accounts, a marvelous job leading TSA. He's been successful at getting higher pay for screeners, keeping lines at a minimum for the most part, and improving the effectiveness of screening, as one particular and frightening baggage discovery recently showed. It's been a quiet five years for TSA, and that's exactly what you want. Indeed, Scott, that's one government agency you really don't want in the news. You know, in the mid-2000s, just after the TSA was created, people joked that TSA stood for thousands standing around. I haven't heard that in a long, long time, and certainly that's not true in the Pekoski era. Yeah, I think that's right. Speaking of news, we have some updates. Last week, we mentioned summer schedule cuts that American and JetBlue were making in New York at the request of the FAA, which is warning of a shortage of air traffic controllers in the New York area this summer. Well, the shortage apparently extends to Washington, D.C., too, and United joined in announcing the schedule cuts. United's cutting Newark-Washington Reagan flights to 10 a day from 18 and LaGuardia-Dulles flights to 6 from 9. Overall, United is reducing departures by about 7% in the area, and United says it will use larger planes in many instances, so the number of seats won't be down as much. Airlines for America, the trade group, said airlines have already trimmed 10% of their flights this spring to address performance issues. I think we're going to see more of this, Scott. It takes a while to get air traffic controllers recruited, trained, and certified to handle aircraft by themselves. The FAA has gotten behind, and it really should embark on a major effort to catch up or we're going to see a lot more of these seasonal schedule cuts and no doubt delays moving airplanes. Yeah, I think this is a really serious issue, Ben. 
we need a head of the FAA quickly, and we need a major focus both on FAA staffing and on FAA technology. When Secretary of Transportation Pete Buttigieg talks about infrastructure, he really should pay more attention to his own aviation infrastructure because it's in decline as travel is surging. I do think, Ben, that we're going to see more and more upgaging of flights at crowded airports, finally. It's always made me kind of crazy that airports like LaGuardia had so many regional jet flights when delays are so common. I know every community wants a nonstop to New York, but these airports are scarce resources now that need to be used more efficiently. I agree, Scott. And some of those smaller airplanes are because of the use it or lose it rules on the slots. You know, if American or Delta or anyone with lots of slots in New York airports could say, look, if you'd give us a break on some of these and not take the slots away from us, we could trim by putting bigger planes. But the way they deal with it is keep all the slots in play by using smaller planes. And all that does is crowd things up more, just like you said. Yeah, that's true, Ben. But I also think airlines hoard the slots uh, as well with the use of the regional jets. So it's not so much that they want to keep the slot for some huge future increase in traffic. They want to keep the slot so that a competitor doesn't get it. And that's not an efficient use of the resource itself either. You know, when I first got to U.S. Airways in 1999, they were flying a 19-seat plane from Reagan National to Utica, New York. UCA was the airport. It's not even there anymore, that airport. (laughs) But my family was from that part of New York State. So I actually took that flight in my first couple months. And while I was sitting on the plane, bouncing around like I was on a wooden roller coaster, I was thinking there's got to be a better use for this slot at Reagan than flying to Utica, New York. And sure enough, we found better places to use it. But ultimately, U.S. Airways, which didn't have the schedule clout that American United or Delta now have, you know, was still forced to use a lot of small planes in both LaGuardia and Reagan because of the slot things. Another update on something we've talked about before, Scott, a Dutch court blocked the Dutch government from reducing the number of flights allowed at Schiphol Airport in Amsterdam. The government had ordered an 8% reduction for pollution and noise control. Airlines in Europe and the U.S., along with the International Air Transport Association, sued. And the court said the government didn't follow the proper procedures in ordering the cap. KLM Royal Dutch Airlines said it can offer better alternatives to addressing climate and noise concerns. So stay tuned on that one. Amsterdam has been an airport that's been trying to reduce traffic in the name of climate change. And that's a big risk to an airline like KLM. Yeah, I think this is a really significant case and one that is closely watched. 
because other governments may well start restricting flights for climate concerns. This is a big threat facing the industry, and I'm not sure the industry has, has fully grasped yet uh, the challenges ahead on climate change. And Ben, speaking of busy airports, I found myself last week sprinting through the world's busiest because I had eight minutes to get from gate B9 to B26 in Atlanta. I made my flight, I'm happy to say. And I got confirmation this week, once I caught my breath, of just how busy Atlanta is. Airports Council International tallied numbers from 2022 and declared ATL the busiest airport in the world once again, both in terms of takeoffs and landings and in terms of passengers. The rankings were interesting because they really showed how airports are still feeling the loss of international flights. Lots of international airports that had been in the top 10 were missing because of the continued pandemic-related slump in international travel. As a result, DFW, which was number 10 in passengers in 2019, was number two in the world last year in passengers. Denver International, which was number 16 in 2019, was number three last year. Los Angeles, which had been number three in 2019, was number six in passengers last year, still missing a lot of international travelers there. The number of passengers in Atlanta was up 24% compared to the prior year, 2021, but it's still down 15% compared to 2019. It's interesting, Dallas-Fort Worth was only down 2.3% in passengers compared to 2019, and Denver was already up slightly compared to 2019. Very interesting numbers, Scott. You know, the big U.S. airlines, really led by United, are betting pretty heavily on a big international summer. There's lots of seats going a lot of places. United, I saw an announcement that they'll be flying to over 100 international cities this summer. That's a huge number. So if the market doesn't keep up with that, that's going to be a challenge for all this capacity going in. You add in the air traffic control challenges and what should be just a really barn buster summer has a few dark clouds on the edge, doesn't it? Yeah, sure does. Well, one other update, Scott, the White House and the FAA showed support for air taxis in the U.S. airspace by moving forward on creating a regulatory framework for incorporating air taxis into the U.S. airspace. This could all get very complicated, especially with a shortage of air traffic controllers, but we certainly need to figure out rules for how these things will fly. One big issue, I think, Ben, will be how much experience air taxi pilots will need before they can fly passengers. If electric small airplanes with vertical takeoff and landing capabilities start swarming in cities, shuttling people from downtown out to airports, for example, it could be a way for new pilots to build hours toward landing airline jobs. On the other hand, the first time an inexperienced air taxi pilot makes a mistake that kills passengers, are we going to up the experience required when we already have a shortage of pilots? 
There are going to be lots of rules to figure out for this new technology. Well, fortunately, in a sense, Scott, I think the technology itself is still years off as the regulatory framework probably is too. Agreeing to create it doesn't mean it's going to be done in June, right? So I think there's lots of time to figure this out as the technology to create the vehicles and the airlines or operators figure out where the demand for these vehicles is going to be. But certainly it's an emerging issue. Yeah, you also have to work in uh, drones as well, because uh, there may be drones sharing the same airspace, and we got to figure out how that's going to work. That's right. And if there's anyone to push, it's probably going to be the smallest airplanes. But I bet the AOPA, or the Aircraft Owners and Pilots Association, is going to have something to say about that. Absolutely. Well, Airlines Confidential wouldn't exist without the support of our sponsors. This week's show is brought to you by Pratt & Whitney, a world leader in aircraft engines, helicopter engines, and auxiliary power units. The Pratt & Whitney GTF engine is the only geared propulsion system delivering industry-leading sustainability and dependable, world-class operating costs. With up to 20% less fuel and CO2 emissions, The GTF engine has revolutionized commercial aviation and set the foundation for more sustainable aviation. Learn more at pwgtf.com. We are thrilled to welcome David Pekoski to Airlines Confidential. Administrator Pekoski has led the TSA since August of 2017. He commands a workforce of over 60,000 employees and is responsible for security operations at nearly 440 airports throughout the United States. Before TSA, David Pekoski was vice commandant of the U.S. Coast Guard. He holds a Master's of Business Administration from MIT and a Master's of Public Administration from Columbia, as well as a Bachelor of Science degree from the U.S. Coast Guard Academy. David, it's a thrill to have you on the broadcast, and uh, we look forward to learning more about TSA. I, I want to start with a, sort of a stability question. You, you've served for more than five years now as TSA administrator, and despite all the turmoil and travel, you just don't hear a lot of TSA complaints these days. I, I'm sure the job is crazy with surprises every day, but it seems like you've calmed things down and gotten TSA into a groove. Would you agree with that? Well, Scott, first, uh, thanks for the opportunity to be with you and and Ben today. And uh, yeah, I I would agree with that. We're in in a very good groove. And a part of it is the the point you raised, uh, Scott, is that, you know, the TSA administrator now by law is a five-year term appointee. And uh, I have the privilege of being now in a second term uh, nominated by President Biden and then confirmed by the Senate this past uh, September. So it does give the administrator now an opportunity to take a longer view, if you will, um, than administrators in the past might have been able to do. But I think the the, the key things I would highlight in terms of um, uh, TSA being uh, a little bit more stable now than I think people might have seen in years past is one, it's a little older. So, you know, TSA is only 21 years old total. So it's still a very young agency. Uh, but one of the things that we, we're doing is focusing uh, on our people uh, and making sure that uh, our people are well supported, well trained, uh, and importantly, uh, well paid. And we just 
received um, the authorization from Congress to um, fix the pay of TSA to make the pay for our employees equal to the pay of every single other government employee uh, that works for the federal government. So that was a big, big win. And just to give you a sense for uh, how much that means uh, in terms of um, a percentage increase, that's about for those officers that the people see in our screen checkpoints that are wearing the TSA uniform, that's about a 30 percent uh, on average increase in pay. So that's significant um, for us. Um, the other thing that um, that I would emphasize too is you know, we've really developed truly outstanding partnerships with our airline and airport partners. Um, you know, there's nothing that we do alone. Uh, we collaborate with each other extensively and we really all look at this as, hey, we've got uh, largely the same uh, goals in mind. How can we work together to achieve those goals uh, with each other? And then the final thing I'd, I'd say is, you know, we put a lot of uh, effort into ensuring that uh, we're as transparent as we possibly can be as a security agency. And so, um, you know, we provide a lot of information for to passengers as they're preparing for travel, as they're in our, our checkpoint process, um, and also on our, our public-facing web pages and on our social media. Uh, and I think people appreciate the fact that, hey, they can ask us a question by text literally while they're standing in a lane. Um, and they'll get an answer back in many cases within a couple seconds of, of the request. And so that that transparency, that accessibility, I think, uh, has really helped us because the more passengers understand the, the things that we need uh, uh, from them in the screening process, I think the quicker it is for everybody. Thanks, David. There's always a lot of attention paid to guns, knives and other weapons discovered and maybe even to things not discovered by screeners. But recently, TSA screeners in Pennsylvania discovered explosives hidden in the lining of a checked bag, and the FBI tracked down the guy and arrested him. He fled when paged at the airport. What can you tell us about that incident? But mostly, do you think it's a sign of increased threat to aviation? No, thank, thanks, Ben. And, and uh, that happened a little over a month ago, and it was at uh, Lehigh Valley International Airport, uh, just outside of Allentown, Pennsylvania. And really for our officers, the number one thing um, that they are looking for uh, either on a person or in a person's either check baggage or carry-on baggage uh, are explosives, because explosives can be, uh, as we all understand, catastrophic to an aircraft and especially an aircraft at 30, 35,000 feet. But um, this, this um, explosive was detected in check baggage. And you know, in check baggage, all check bags that go on board an aircraft are screened by x-ray. And those x-rays are designed to detect things like, uh, like the explosives. And the officer um, saw the uh, image on, on the bag as it alarmed. Uh, and then we went through the process of um, setting aside that bag uh, and then really determining what we thought was in it uh, more closely as we were looking at the x-ray image and decided that, hey, given that it looked like an explosive, we needed to evacuate um, that particular area. Um, and then really what uh, one thing that kind of piggybacks on what I talked about just a minute ago, uh, our partnership with local law enforcement is, uh, is incredibly important as it is with the FBI. And so both local law enforcement and the FBI uh, came and assisted uh, in this process, but really a, a really great example of a TSO um, who's highly trained to do um, do the job and has the technology that enables uh, that job to be done. And then really, uh, again, everybody coming together uh, to be able to quickly address um, the issue. And in, in terms of an increased threat um, to aviation, you know, one of the things that 
we look at is any threat to aviation and uh, trying to stay ahead of where our threat actors uh, might be. And, and so we're always looking for improved processes, improved technologies, and uh, improved information uh, that will help us um, uh, make sure that we stay ahead of those threat vectors. But this was really, like I said, a, a great example of partnership and a great example of our officers doing um, the great work that we asked them to do. Um, the other thing that, that I just mentioned here is that I don't want to skip the topic of firearms, Ben. You, you, you used it as part of the intro. And, uh, and just to give you a sense for uh, our concern with respect to firearms and checkpoints, um, we, we detected last calendar year, so in calendar year 2022, 6,542 firearms in our checkpoints. And uh, of those 6,542, 88% uh, were loaded. Um, and when we look at the data uh, to see where, where this, inf this um, detection of firearms is trending, the uh, next highest year on record for us was just last year. So the trend is clearly not in the right direction. Uh, one of the things that we message uh, extensively to passengers is um, you can you can travel with a firearm. Uh, you just can't travel with a firearm in the cabin of an aircraft. You have to declare the firearm to the carrier and then properly package that firearm in your checked baggage. Um, and so, you know, I just just a reminder to to all the listeners um, that that you have is is uh, just you know just rethink if if you if you are uh, a, a gun owner and you are traveling. Hey, let's just make sure that 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 firearm is not in my carry-on bags on my person, um, and that if I do want to carry it, I I call the airline and properly uh, check and secure that firearm in my check baggage. That's great advice. You know, David, I travel regularly from. DCA Reagan National Airport to Dallas. And I've noticed that at DCA, I'm never asked to remove my iPad or Kindle from my bag. But at Dallas on the return flight, I'm always asked to remove those. This is not a complaint at all because it's not a big deal, but it makes me wonder how much autonomy does each airport have on this kind of policy? Yeah, no, thanks, Ben. Uh, you know, airports have uh, a level of autonomy that we think is appropriate for the uh, successful conduct of the mission, but there should be general consistency uh, between airports. What, what you might be experiencing is different technologies that might be in play in different airports because we're in the process now of redoing all of the technology in the 2,400 plus screening lanes that we have around the country. And of course, you know, you can't, even if you could afford to do it all at once, you can't install it all at once. So it's going to take some time. So you're going to see different technologies um, in different airports for the next many years. Um, the other thing is part of our screening protocol is um, we always have what we call a random selection rate. And so on occasion, um, a passenger will be selected for enhanced screening at totally at random. Uh, and this is done just as an added security measure and as an added layer of security uh, within our system, but that's that would be um, uh, generally an unusual uh, circumstance for any given traveler. Uh, but that is also part of our process. And it may be you, Ben. I I travel out of <laughs> Dallas with an iPad, and and I've never been asked to pull it out. Uh, um, David, you you pushed hard for new technology, which you just mentioned some of, but hard pushed hard for new technology at TSA. The history is always that some ideas work and some don't. Give us some examples of technology improvement and, and why you think that's important to travel safety. 
No, thanks, Scott. I think I think technology is critical, and I think it's really important that uh, when you ask um, uh, you know any any one of our employees to do a very difficult job and to um, be a hundred percent accurate uh, on on everything they do, which is a tall order. And you look at the scale of the operation that we have. You know, on on a given day, generally two point five million passengers go through the domestic screening checkpoints in the United States, and uh, that usually equates to about five million carry-on items that need x-ray screening. And so there's just a significant um, uh, amount of items and individuals that we screen in our checkpoints every given day. And so what we've tried to do is, is look at ways um, that we can, one, improve our security effectiveness to make sure that our security gets better all the time. Secondly, to improve our security efficiency, because um, you know, that's, that's something that uh, as a traveler myself, I expect of, of um, this government agency is to get more and more efficient uh, over time. And the third criteria we have for any technology investment is to make sure that it improves the passenger or the customer experience. And so I'll give you um, three quick examples of the technology we're putting in our checkpoints now. Uh, and this technology is becoming more and more widely um, uh, deployed across all of our uh, airports, 430 airports in the country. But the first is, you know, and, and as you go through the screening process, the first stop you make is where we uh, verify your identity. And we have a new technology there that um, allows the passenger to insert their driver's license or their passport uh, into a machine. The machine reads the credential, determines whether the credential is authentic or not. Um, and then while the passenger is standing there, um, the, the technology goes back and checks uh, in our records, that passenger's flight status. So we'll know that that passenger has a flight, let's say on United Airlines um, at 4 p.m. Out of, out of that airport. And we'll also know what that passenger's um, status is with respect to whether or not they're a pre-check passenger um, or a standard passenger or a passenger that might need additional screening based on, on, on history. So um, that technology is significantly improved from really just a human eyeball. Uh, doing most of that work uh, in the past in a, in a paper boarding pass. Um, the next iteration of that technology is going to be the uh, addition of a camera system so that when uh, a passenger puts the driver's license in the technology, the um, driver's license will be digit. The image on the driver's license will be digitized. Camera will take a picture of the passenger and will compare those two digital images. And just to give you a sense for how much better security that is, um, that brings us from probably around an 85% level of effectiveness for um, a person to be able to match uh, an image on a credential with an image of the person standing in front of them to well over 99% when you do the digital uh, comparison. Um, and then the further uh, advancement in identity verification is going to be using uh, mobile driver's licenses. And in uh, four states now, you can present uh, your mobile driver's license in some airports. And we're still doing a, a prototype on this, but the prototype is going very well. And uh, you can do it in Arizona, in Maryland, in Utah, and Colorado. Um, what you do as a, as a state resident of those states with a driver's license from that state is the state DMVs have a very um, uh, security forward process where you literally download your, your driver's license into your smartphone. And then you just use that as your identity. And we electronically pass that information when you get to the checkpoint. So that's the first stop. The second stop would be on the computed tomography or CT um, or CAT scan, all, all the same te technology, just different names for it. It's basically medical grade uh, x-ray technology. Uh, what that does is it detects a lot better. And then for passengers, you don't have to take out uh, laptops, um, uh, iPads, uh, liquids, aerosols, and gels, 
uh, a lot of other things that we used to ask passengers to take out of their carry-on bags. And so uh, overall, it's more convenient. And uh, and also because you don't have to take things out and uh, we don't have to search as many bags because we can resolve issues uh, using the technology without having to do a search, um, that generally shortens the time that that particular step in the process uh, requires. And then the last piece is our on-person screening. Uh, passengers know that uh, if they're a standard passenger, non-pre-check, they go and they stand inside a machine, put their hands above their shoulders, and then um, that, that scans them uh, so we can determine if they have anything on their person that might cause a security concern. What we've been doing over the past several months is deploying a, uh, a software upgrade to that technology, which uh, improves its ability to detect and then greatly reduces its false alarm rate. So what that means is um, that um, fewer passengers uh, will require a pat down um, as part of the process. So those three principal primary um, screening technologies are uh, beginning to be deployed fairly widely across the system. And those represent kind of the path we're on uh, for technology improvements for the, for the present time. But we've got other things in mind for the future as well. Well, let's talk about the future then. And how much of your team's time can be thinking about technology for the future? Tell us what it might be like going through TSA, say, five years from now. Sure, Ben. A great question. And we, you know, we think about that all the time. We're thinking five years from now, 10 years from now, uh, and even beyond that. But certainly within five years, uh, when you go into the checkpoint, um, you probably will see fewer TSA people in the checkpoint. It's not that we're reducing the number of people in TSA because we still will require roughly the same number to do our screening, but we're just moving them off the checkpoint floor uh, into remote rooms. So a lot of the x-ray reading will not be done uh, in the checkpoint. It will be done in another location uh, at the airport. This is better uh, because it's a quieter environment, and it also allows us to uh, make sure we maximize every single person's ability to review x-ray images. So, um, you know, a person right now can only read the x-ray images in the lane they're sitting in, where this will allow us to read x-ray images from any lane uh, in that airport. So it allows us to be much more efficient uh, in the process. Um, the next thing that people will see, I think, within the next five years is, you know, right now when you put your carry-on bag down and it goes into the x-ray machine, every single one of those bags, the image comes up and the officer that's sitting right next to the x-ray has to review that image I just talked about we're moving the officer off that floor, but we're taking a further step in that uh, we're working uh, with machine learning technology to um, automatically identify any of the threats that we have a concern with. So there will be some bags where you literally put your bag down. The image will never come up to an officer. The machine uh, will determine whether or not there's any kind of a threat item uh, in that bag. And, and that should be out uh, within the next two, three, uh, maybe four years. Um, the last one is, is uh, working towards those uh, mobile driver's licenses, those digital IDs. I mentioned the four states that are already participating uh, in that process. We'll see many more um, that will participate in that across all the smartphone manufacturers, whether it's a Google smartphone, a, a Samsung, uh, or an Apple uh, iPhone. Um, the last thing I'd, I'd mention, kind of a good opportunity to do this, is we're working on uh, what's called one-stop security, which means that uh, for certain international airports um, that we have... Um, a strong partnership with, and we've done a lot of testing with, um, you'll be able to engage in a process called one-stop security, which means when you leave that airport and you fly into the United States from an international location, uh, you'll, you'll land at a U.S. international airport. And, and let's say you have a follow-on flight to another airport in the United States. So an international flight into the U.S. and a follow-on domestic flight. Right now, you have to get rescreened at that U.S. international airport. Uh, one-stop security means that 
uh, we've deemed the screening at the international airport that you depart from to be commensurate with the screening that you would receive in the United States. And so therefore you don't need to get rescreened here. Um, so you'll be able to go into the uh, immigration process with Customs and Border Protection, stay in the secure area of the airport and not be rescreened again. And then the other convenience will be uh, your, your check bag, if you have one, will literally go from one aircraft to the next. You won't have to go and retrieve your check bag, um, have Customs clear your check bag, and then reinsert it into the U.S. Uh, baggage handling process. So it should save probably an hour, hour and a half um, on the turn time for a passenger that uh, has a follow-on domestic flight after international travel. Boy, that'd be great. And I'm curious, too, about the timing on the X-ray, uh, the new X-ray machine technology uh, for carry-on bags. That, that's been the sort of the slow part of the checkpoint, right? And you, mm -hmm. and you see there are often uh, two X-ray machines and one metal detector. It's much faster to get through the metal detector than you stand there waiting for your bags. Mm -hmm. will, will the new system speed up um, the, the X-ray check of the bag of carry-on baggage? It, it, it will, if, if, if we don't have to uh, review every single image when it comes up. So in other words, the technology reviews the image for you, it does it faster um, than, than an officer uh, can humanly do it. So that will speed it up a little bit. Um, the other thing though, when you, when you think of the new X-ray technology, the, diff the major difference between the current technology we have and this new technology is a CT X-ray, a computer tomography X-ray, takes a 360 degree image of a bag, which means that the the antenna array for the X-ray system needs to travel completely around the bag. And that's what it's doing that when the bag is in the tunnel um, of the, of the X-ray machine. That physically takes a, a few seconds longer than if it's just sitting and stopped um, in the middle of that X-ray. And, and uh, But we, we think that once these get deployed and people get used to them, both our, our transportation security officers and the public in terms of how you pack a, a bin to go into the X-ray, that the, um, the overall um, bag clearance process will be no longer and probably a little bit less long than it is today. Mm, that'd be great. Some of the technologies that TSA has introduced have created some degree of controversy over assumed or real bias in the technology's algorithms. What comes to mind immediately are like the, the advanced imaging machines and the false alarms they create. You addressed some of that before but uh, false alarms for certain populations and the facial recognition tests that some people complain discriminate among race, ethnicity, and gender. What, what can you tell us about this? Sure. Um, uh, first and foremost, we would not deploy a technology that has an error rate that's different um, across the traveler demographics in the country. Uh, so we just wouldn't deploy it. And um, we do extensive testing of our, our uh, biometric technology to ensure that that's not the case. And our, our testing independently verified um, by the science and technology um, director in the Department of Homeland Security indicates that um, there's no statistical um, difference in error rates uh, amongst demographics uh, in the traveler population with the, with the technology that we're currently deploying. Um, the other thing that's very, very important for us in biometrics is to be as crystal clear as we possibly can be with passengers so they know how we're going to manage the data um, that we have. I mean, people are, are providing data that, that uh, represents their facial image, um, data on their um, driver's license, mobile or otherwise. And, uh, and, and we wanted to make it as, um, uh, as, as direct as we possibly could. And so our, 
uh, written policy, which is established in a, in a privacy impact statement that has to be approved by many people within the government before we can publish it, uh, and is also published on our public-facing webpage and available at any checkpoint if somebody wants to ask for it. But basically, as a passenger, when you um, use your driver's license, um, and let's use the new technology, let's use the mobile driver's license uh, for a second. It's not vastly different in terms of data um, than, than the, um, uh, the hard credential, but if you're using a mobile driver's license, literally you go up to the, to the checkpoint, um, you tap your phone on a reader, and then electronically it transmits certain data fields on your driver's license. And actually your smartphone tells you exactly which data fields are being transmitted. And those are your name, your date of birth, uh, and your photograph. Um, and then uh, as soon as you walk away from that technology and the next person steps up and uh, go, starts to go through their part of the process, your data is erased. We don't retain it at all. Um, and then at the end of the day, if you're the last passenger, um, all of our officers have to log off the technology. And so as soon as they log off, that data is erased. So we don't, we don't retain the data for any longer than we need to just simply verify identity, because that's what we're doing at that part of the, of the screening process. But really a key focus of mine is making sure that there's no uh, error rates across demographics uh, in our uh, technology. This involves um, up the most up-to-date and NIST, um, NIST compliant standards for the software. Um, and then also the best camera systems, we use multiple cameras, so a low light and a regular light camera, uh, right lighting in the checkpoint, and then, like I said, being very, very clear about um, our policy with respect to uh, which data fields that we're, uh, we're using for your identity verification and then how long we're going to retain that information, which is literally a, a matter of seconds. You know, airlines and airports have had a hard time getting the staff they need really since the pandemic. In New York this summer, airlines are being asked to trim schedules because air traffic control is only about 54% staffed. How much of an issue is this for the TSA? Are you anywhere close to full strength now? And if not, what's the outlook for this summer when the industry is expecting a real boom in traffic? Yeah, and, and, and uh, Ben, I, I agree. We're all projecting a, a significant boom in traffic. We've already seen it, candidly, during spring break. I mean, spring break is you know, between 10 to 15% more passengers this year than just last year. Um, and we expect that the growth will continue um, through the summer. So we're all working very hard to make sure that we have the staff we're going to need um, in our and for TSA in our checkpoint screening processes and other things that we do that support uh, aviation security. Uh, one of the things I mentioned uh, at the very beginning was we were uh, fortunate enough that the Congress um, uh, approved the president's request to pay TSA uh, officers and everybody else in TSA at the same rate of pay that they'd receive anywhere else in government. 30% pay increase is a big, big difference. And um, we've already seen significant progress in our ability to recruit and also in our ability to retain the talent that we have uh, within the agency. So uh, I think the pay um, uh, work that the Congress did uh, will have a significant impact on our ability to be staffed at levels we need to be staffed at this summer. Um, the other thing that, that we have worked very hard on is um, where we have airports that uh, might not be at the staffing that they need to be, we have a volunteer group of officers that literally volunteer from airports around the country 
to go um, uh, temporarily assigned to airports that might need their help for 30 days, 60 days, up to 120 days uh, if needed. And that, that group of people is about a thousand people. So, you know, just think about, hey, what, what a great group of individuals that um, uh, when asked, not forced, uh, just asked to volunteer um, to go temporarily to other parts of the country on literally a moment's notice to provide help uh, where needed that they do this. And so um, we have deployed over spring break um, between six and 700 of that thousand people uh, to be able to close gaps in, in areas. You know, spring break is, is a little different than the summer in some ways where certain airports are clearly more busy than others. And so um, you know, we use this volunteer force to be able to close those staffing gaps that we have. But I, I don't expect that we're going to um, exceed our wait time standards. And our, our, our wait time standards are, if you're a pre-check passenger, our standard and our staffing model uh, is such that you should wait generally 10 minutes or less in, in pre-check. Oftentimes pre-check is actually five minutes or less. Um, and then in a standard lane, you should wait 30 minutes or less. And so, you know, I just ask folks to think about not how long the line is, but how long you wait in line, because that, that's the measurement that we use. And I think that's the right measurement uh, as a passenger. I, I, I don't care literally how long the line is. I just care that it takes me 20 minutes or ho hopefully under 30 if, if I'm a standard passenger. And I expect that we'll meet those standards throughout the summer. Terrific. What do you think is the biggest challenge ahead for TSA? Um, a couple, um, Scott. One is uh, funding. You know, we, we have we have a budget that, um, uh, you know, and I think every federal agency will say this, but we, we are a very public facing agency with a critical national security mission. And um, and our budget is tight. It's a tight budget. And, uh, you know, uh, I'd like to be able to bring technology on a lot faster than I am because the technology means better security, means more efficiency, means a better customer experience. So, so the budget is, is a big, big challenge. And, uh, you know, I've, I had the opportunity to testify before the House Appropriations uh, Subcommittee for Homeland Security uh, last week. And that was one of the big points that I made uh, with all the members that, uh, you know, hey, our, our budget's a tight budget and really need their, their support for everything that the president has asked. Um, the other thing is, is budget related, but, it, it, but it's, um, you know, it's what drives the budget, quite frankly, is we need to be a, a very agile agency. Um, and in fact, our vision leads off with these words, uh, quote, an agile security agency, unquote. So what I um, focus on and one of our biggest challenges is, you know, we're a big agency and, and as a large agency, not losing that agility that is so important for us to stay many, many steps ahead of our adversaries. So um, remaining agile is, is a key challenge for us as well. You know, anyone who travels can't help but see how much better TSA has gotten under your leadership, Administrator. What are you most proud of at the agency, and what do you still hope to accomplish? Well, that, thanks, Ben, for, for the comment. I, I greatly appreciate that. And, and that's, you know, that's one of our goals is to make sure that um, people view us as um, an agency that's ensuring their safety and security um, and is... Uh, leaning in from a technology perspective to make sure that we're staying ahead of adversaries and that we're uh, providing the uh, benefits of technology to um, all the travelers that we have and really supporting the United States economy. I mean, this, you know, trade and travel is a huge part of the U.S. GDP. Uh, but what I'm most proud of are the people in the agency. You know, I've, I've been the administrator for over five years now. I've traveled extensively throughout TSA. And uh, there are thousands and thousands of stories I could tell you about the things that 
that our people do uh, every single day that go largely unnoticed, um, uh, and, and and many of them should go unnoticed, but it, it just really makes me very proud to um, have uh, such a great team uh, in our airports, uh, our federal air marshals that provide uh, in-flight security, all the people that we have that um, do vetting of passengers and vetting of pilots, for example, and transportation workers, um, collect the intelligence that we need to operate and really support the, the, uh, the smooth operation of this large uh, organization. And what I, what I still want to accomplish is I really want to build uh, very strongly on the foundation of trust that we've established uh, with partners and, uh, and also with passengers. You know, I think that's, that's um, so important for an agency that, um, uh, that all of us pay for. And it's so important for an agency that we entrust um, our security and, and really a lot of our privacy to um, as we go through the screening process. And so we're really trying very hard to, to build on that foundation of trust um, uh, with travelers and, and continue to be um, the agency that um, uh, you know, people look at and say, Hey, they're they're moving pretty quickly. Um, you know, they're they're able to get some improvements in place pretty quickly. Or if um, if there is an issue that is identified that they need to improve, one they identify that they need to improve on it, um, and then relatively quickly put in a solution that prevents uh, whatever concern was there uh, from not being there uh, any longer. So um, I'm I'm just really looking forward to the opportunity to continue to serve for. Um, a little over four years uh, going forward. It's it's a real privilege to to lead this agency. Thanks. Well, we thank you. We thank you for this great conversation, and and also thank you for for all you've done for travelers. Uh, as a frequent traveler, I really do appreciate um, what you've done with TSA, and then and congratulate you on the many accomplishments and uh, and the and the years of safe flying that we've had. Um, look forward to a great summer of uh, lots of lots of travelers to screen and uh, and safe travel and hope it all goes smoothly. Thanks so much, David. Um, thanks for being on Airlines Confidential, and we look forward to staying in touch. Hey, thank you, Scott, and thank you, Ben. I appreciate it. And we'll be right back with more Airlines Confidential in a minute. Promotional consideration by thearchive.net, the hub of the history of commercial aviation. Thearchive.net is now boarding. Well, welcome back to Airlines Confidential and a really big thanks to Administrator Pekoski for a really insightful interview. I can't wait to see some of that new technology the next time I travel. Well, we want to thank our sponsor, DoHop, which is revolutionizing travel connectivity. DoHop is a travel technology provider enabling airlines to expand their networks, offer more connectivity, create additional partnerships, and focus on improving the customer experience with more offers, services, and travel options. Airlines benefit from generating additional revenue, lower costs, and maintaining full customer ownership. Plus, in the event of travel disruptions, Duhop works with airlines and offers assistance in helping passengers reach their final destination. Visit duhop.com. That's D-O-H-O-P.com. 
And we want to remind listeners about Aviation Festival Americas 2023, which will be May 16th and 17th in Miami Beach. Scott and I will be on stage on the morning of the 17th, recording the podcast with the audience and a very special guest. And Airlines Confidential listeners get a special discount. Just go to airlinesconfidential.com and click on the banner and use AC50 to save 50% on your registration. Okay, Ben, some interesting comments and questions in the mailbag. First, Justin from New Mexico asks one more question about the JetBlue Spirit merger. Well, really two more. And I suspect this won't be the last one or two either. Justin says, hey guys, I just listened to the episode with Mo Garfinkel and it made me think about how the government and others would have reacted to a merger between Frontier and JetBlue. The big argument from the government, Mo and others, is that removing the largest ULCC will harm the customer. What if the merger didn't involve the largest ULCC, but the second largest? Would they have a similar argument? Or is it truly a story that they don't want any airline mergers? Do you think that the government would have sued to block a frontier and spirit merger? Justin, interesting hypothetical questions here. I'm not sure acquiring frontier would be attractive to JetBlue. Yes, you'd get planes and pilots, just not as many. But beyond that, you get a major operation in Denver, but that's a tough market. Both United and Southwest have hub operations there. I know Southwest doesn't call it a hub, but I went through there recently and it sure looked like a hub. A ton of airplanes and all kinds of people connecting from one flight to another. Spirit has a major presence at a lot of Midwest airports, and that's attractive to JetBlue in terms of building a nationwide network. Would the Justice Department object? I think probably so, since the Justice Department has basically been opposed to most any kind of merger in any industry, and certainly has stated that it opposes additional airline consolidation of any kind. You ask about a frontier and spirit merger, which of course was the original deal Spirit agreed to before JetBlue swooped in with a richer offer. Would that have flown on antitrust concerns? It's a fascinating question. Frontier certainly argued it would have had a much easier time with DOJ approval, and I think it probably would have some easier time. A bigger, stronger ULCC from the combination of two companies with similar styles probably would have been more attractive to the DOJ. However, I don't think a combined Frontier and Spirit would be as significant a competitor to the big four, which would have found effective ways to isolate and limit their price matches of ULCCs, while JetBlue has proven to be a tougher competitor to marginalize. Then again, DOJ may well have opposed any airline merger. It's an interesting question we may never know the answer to. Scott, Rob from Houston offers this. Here's a basic question I've always wondered about. Why do pilots and flight attendants have pay scales based on their years with a specific airline rather than based on their experience doing the job? 
I thought it might be union-related, but non-union airlines also seem to pay this way. I always feel bad when I see people nearing retirement age change airlines, usually not by choice, and go back to the bottom of the pay scale. Other airline professionals like mechanics don't seem to have this issue. Thank you and love the show. Scott, my experience and observation has been that if unions are involved, they work out a merger agreement or have one imposed on them if they can't work it out where seniority lists are integrated together or feathered in, so to speak. Now, sometimes lots of people do get stapled onto the bottom of the seniority list if they are in the group being acquired by a bigger airline. It is interesting that pay scales are determined by seniority, not by, say, skills. You get to fly larger planes with richer pay, for example, based on seniority and not based on exceptional flying skills. That's the way unions have wanted it, so particular employees couldn't be punished by management easily so that everyone's pay goes up. There's also an understanding that everyone can deliver the same level of safety and everyone has to undergo the same training. Experience does matter, so the seniority system rewards employees for that experience. It really is an interesting aspect to aviation, Ben. The best pilots don't necessarily get rewarded. I think sometimes that's frustrating to highly skilled, smart people. The seniority system also ties workers to airlines more than in any other industry that I can think of. That's a good thing, I think, if you pick the right airline, the one that's going to grow and thrive financially for the next 30 or 40 years of your career. But that's tough to predict, right? And lots of people at Eastern or Braniff or lots of other airlines had to start over at the bottom with a new airline. The other thing is that management gets to change airlines, but workers don't. Executives can go to a rival airline for more money or a bigger job or to another company outside the industry. But the workers wear the uniform and they're locked in. They may care a whole lot more about the future of that company than some of the executives may and certainly have more invested in the company. It's important for airline managers to always remember that. I think that's a really good point. I will say, however, that management in the airline can get fired on the day they walk in one day just because someone doesn't like the color of their shirt. And unions protect their members from that kind of frivolousness. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I, you know, when we talked to Gordon Bethune, I was thinking about this the other day. He used to talk about when the flight attendants or, or pilots would get on a, a hotel bus. And did you feel proud of the uniform you were wearing or did you cover it up? And were you sort of embarrassed uh, by it? You know, the frontline workers do have so much invested and the the job of management really is uh, almost as a football coach, motivating those workers uh, to produce really good uh, service for people. But it can be hard because they are protected. And, you know, the, the surly ones uh, don't necessarily get paid any less than the happy ones. 
That's right, Scott. Well, one more. This one's been in our mailbag for a while, and I'm glad we get a chance to discuss it now. Joe from Los Angeles says he saw a segment on the NBC Nightly News about air travel pollution. Do you think Congress and DOT Secretary Mayor Pete could possibly impose restrictions on how often airlines can schedule flights due to the climate crisis? Well, given that everyone is talking more about the climate crisis, I'm sure that there's going to be some pressure to think about this. The industry has gotten ahead of this, Joe, if you notice, by saying that everyone's committed to be net neutral by 2050. And they're not just saying that, they're laying out pathways to get there, bringing in more modern airplanes, using more sustainable fuel, ultimately moving in a decade or so to maybe even hydrogen airplanes. So as long as the industry takes the challenge seriously and is doing things about it, I think that'll lessen the congressional need or the DOT need to impose something. What do you think, Scott? Well, I think that's right, Ben, but I think the industry is going to have a really tough time getting to that 2050 goal. I think one of the major problems is a new airplane is not coming quickly. Both, you know, Boeing doesn't have any plans for a new single aisle airplane right now and has talked about maybe something by 2035. What I hear from airline people is that may be 2040. If there's not a new airplane with more efficiency and less uh, carbon emission um, until 2040, then it's going to be really hard to meet that 2050 goal because it's going to take a long time to get those new airplanes into fleets. So this is a really difficult problem. And I think if we get to the point where uh, carbon is uh, capped or taxed or whatever, Uh, In other industries, certainly it's going to affect the airline industry, and it really may come to the point where uh, we end up, as we've already seen in Amsterdam, of trying to uh, limit schedules to reduce carbon emissions. You know, Scott, and it's it's a bias in a sense because you see an airplane going through the sky and you can think, Wow, what's that putting into the atmosphere? And yet the global airlines produce fewer than 5% of all global emissions. And yet they're so obvious that people think of them as a bigger piece of the problem than they really are. That said, they need to get greener and they need to meet that 2050 target. And there's a lot they have to do. But if we really want to save the planet, we're going to need a lot more than just regulating the airlines. Yeah, of course. And that's a great point. You know, when you look up in the sky and you see the contrail, um, <laughs> I think people do think that's that's pollution. It's not. It's water vapor. Uh, but it's, it's not the carbon coming out of the engine. Uh, but that said, a lot of carbon does come out of the engine. And, uh, and it is a very visible symbol and 
So I think as we've seen throughout the history of the airline industry, it is so visible, it can become a target. And, uh, and I think a lot more work needs to be done on this issue. We'll be talking about this one for a while, I think, Scott. Yeah. But that's all for Airlines Confidential this week. Have a great week, everyone. Thanks for listening. Send us your questions and comments, and we'll have more next week on Airlines Confidential. This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.